Okay, the title today is called A Reasonable Faith, and we go straight through the Bible together every time. We're just, just so happens that we're in Acts chapter 19 this morning. We've gone through John, we're going through Acts, and now we're in Acts 19. We're going to read verses 8 through 20. Um, and if any of you don't have Bibles that once one, Aiden wouldn't mind getting a Bible and getting it to you. So if you want a Bible and you want to read along, just say so. Otherwise, just trust me, but I could be lying to you. This might not actually be in the Bible what I say today, and you're not going to know. Anyway, all right, so we're going to read Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. <clears throat> we're talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's been going through some missionary journeys, and now he's been at Ephesus for a while. So in verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, sorry, that's my speaker turning off, um, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches." Seven sons of one Seva, or Skeva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Not a good day. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced, log- uh, sorry, practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that you've inspired men to write. I thank you that they are your words and that they are also historical documents that account for the life of Jesus on earth and what happened during his life and after his life. And now in the book of Acts, we get to look at these apostles who went about sharing the message, the good news of salvation in Christ. And so we thank you for this word. We ask that you would show us this morning what you want us to hear from it. This is how you reveal yourself today, is in this word. So we want you to reveal yourself. We want to know you. We want to know you better. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the term free time? The term free time. Free time? Mm-hmm. Is that for the kids? Freedom. Well, you're a kid to somebody. Okay, okay. To someone you're a kid. Okay. So anybody can answer. <laughs> free time. Time to play. Time to play? To be entertained. Entertained. Can I go play a <laughs> yeah. 
Like when your parents say to you, okay, for the next couple hours, you got free time. Just do whatever you want, right? For the next couple hours, it's free time. You're free to do whatever you want to do. So what kind of things do you want to do in your free time? Texting friends. Yeah? Eating cereal. <laughs> Eating cereal that Eric says. Eating cereal. All right. So definitely not work, though, right? Like, you don't often hear things like, okay, now it's free time, so go clean your room because it's free time. That wouldn't make sense, right? Well, I mean, see, that's why I because that's what I do. Yeah, okay, when you grow up, it's a little different because you finally have the time to do. But still, all you're doing is taking advantage. That isn't really free time. You just found some more work to do. When you actually get all that done, let's say you clean the whole house and like Eric's not home yet and for some reason your kids fell asleep on the couch and you're like, what do I do now? Like, I have free time to do whatever I want to do. Right? A leisurely activity. How about studying? Is that a leisurely activity? No. Not usually, right? It is here. That's going to be... Okay, so I usually begin with some sort of question like that. It's a kind of foreshadowing. You'll find out later on why I asked that question. Okay? Anyway, so... Yeah, Sam's going to start learning that all of his free time now is all just for school. Anyway, so the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus. Um, we started reading about that last week. He met some disciples that had followed John the Baptist, but they didn't quite know the full picture of Jesus yet, so he explained it to them. They were happy about that. They received it. They believed. They got baptized. They became disciples. But Paul spent a couple of months still trying to be in the synagogue where the Jews met to share with these Jews, hey, this was your Messiah. You always look forward for a Messiah. This was him. He came like this is him, and he was reasoning and convincing, and that went on for a couple of months. But eventually, just like Jesus said it would, the Jews rejected it. They, they didn't want that kind of Messiah. They were looking more for a political leader, not the kind that Jesus was. Um, and so he ended up leaving and going to this other place. A couple of verses to comment on. This whole thing called Christianity, they called it the way back then. Um, the first time we saw that was in chapter 9, verse 2. And it's used a couple of times, and they think maybe it's because Jesus said, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Or because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Somehow along the way, they started calling these disciples people of the way. And so that's what they were called originally. So when it says um, in verse 9, they were speaking evil of the way, that means they were talking bad about the disciples and about this new movement, saying this isn't a Jewish thing, this is a cult, don't follow these people. So they were speaking evil of it, they weren't listening. And so he leaves from there and he goes into this place called the School of Tyrannus. By the way, this is, this is Malik, this is Pam, this is Morgan, and, oh my gosh, hold on, I'm going to get Lloyd. it. No, no, oh, you shouldn't, I was, it was right there. This is Lloyd and Jordan and, no, um, hold on. No, I don't have it, it's gone for me. Skyla. Skyla, oh, well, see, you kind of understand, right? It's kind of a different name, not as common as other names, but I neither is Malik. Anyway, Dad. welcome. Um, okay, so the school of Tyrannus. Um, not much is known about the guy named Tyrannus, but this was a school, and this word school in the Greek means leisure. Hmm. So it can mean different things. 
it might, like that word could have been used to refer to a, a room in the house that you use for different kinds of activities. And so maybe a man named Tyrannus might have been a philosopher. They think maybe he was either a Greek philosopher or maybe he was a Jewish teacher. This could have been his room of leisure where he studied. Uh, or it could have been some other kind of just area that was set aside for this sort of thing where anybody could come in and, and they would just discuss. And Either way, it was a public place with enough room that the disciples could go there. So they left the synagogue and they went to this place. And so imagine that you call a place of leisure the place where you study. That's kind of a interesting thing. Hey, I'm bored. You want to go study? They got that wrong. Sort of unusual. What we see in this example, though, is that Paul is flexible and he adjusts to the needs of the situation. For example, Sam, would you mind telling Lindsay that the oven's going off and asking her if we should be doing something? Let's be flexible to the situation. Oh, she is? Okay, maybe she's already been told. All right. Because I don't know if I should turn that off or what's going on. Anyway, so Paul's being flexible to the needs of the situation. He was in the synagogue preaching. That wasn't working out. And so he switched to meeting in this other place called the School of Tyrannus. And we see that happening today. Churches meet in all sorts of different places. They meet in homes like we're doing now. They meet in barns. If you've ever heard of the cowboy church, they meet in barns. I actually went one time and I sat on these cool old bleachers and this cat with no tail came up next to me and there's like a horse and this guy in a cowboy hat was preaching and this little kid, like seven years old, was, you know, spitting while, you know, it was like cowboy church. Um, so they have that here in North Carolina. Um, churches also meet in schools, like the community church right here in, in Mount Pleasant meets there. Or, you know, in like a YMCA, like Fusion City in Kannapolis meets in the YMCA. Um, in office spaces like we used to. We can meet wherever. The church isn't about a building, right? The church is the, church is the people. We are the church. And we meet wherever it's convenient, wherever it works for everybody. And um, so that's, that's neat that they do that. And that Paul's flexible to doing that. The thing to notice, though, is that, Aiden, shh. The thing to notice is that even though they change their environment, Paul doesn't change his method of how he's going to be instructing these people. And it says um, in verse 9 that he was reasoning and persuading them. And then he goes into the school of Tyrannus in verse 10, or verse, I'm sorry, that was verse 8. And then in verse 9 it says that he was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he, he didn't change his method all the way through that. And so... Um, what did I say here? <laughs> Sorry, I have a paragraph that makes no sense. It's like I, I took two ideas and must have copied and pasted. And so, saying that he changed yes, he yeah, he didn't change his method. He changed the environment, but he didn't change how he did it. And so that's really important because there are churches today that do things in different ways. But we should we should be consistent about like what we're actually doing here is we're seeking God, we're learning what God has to say to us from His Word. And so when the environment's not working, that doesn't mean, oh, just add some new feature or add some new program to make the people happy again. It's, no, it's the method is what, it's the Bible. We, we do expository teaching. We go through the Bible verse by verse. We want to help us to understand what God has for us. Um, but the environment might change along the way, but his method didn't. I've got to figure out now why this is here. I'm sorry, guys. I'm a little bit off today. I have an excuse, too. I didn't sleep all night. Yeah, it was weird. That's all right. Um, I'm sorry. This has never happened before, actually. I don't know what I was saying. I don't know what this means. Um, that's what it was. I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. Reasoning and persuading. 
has always been part of the Christian faith. That's where I wanted to go with this as well. Because oftentimes today, for some reason in Christianity, we have this idea that knowledge and God are like opposed to each other. People say, oh yeah, you shouldn't be all intellectual. Just, just trust in God. Just have faith. Don't try to like know everything. But the truth is that as long as there's been Christianity and the apostles, they've always explained, they've always reasoned, they've always studied, they've always wanted to learn more. And so this method of, of reasoning, of instructing, is, is part of the very fabric of what it means to be a Christian is not to have this thing called blind faith where, oh, just believe it because you grew up this way, you're in the South, your parents, it must be true, so just go ahead and just believe it blindly. It's a reasonable faith that we have. And for example, like today's Easter, and to me one of the most exciting things about Easter is that it's actually a fact that it happened. I mean, at least as far as you can consider anything to be a fact. When you look at Easter and what happened, if it was just a myth or just some nice story, it would actually have no benefit for us. That's what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians. I think it's, um, where is that? In 1 Corinthians, I think it's, I didn't write the verse down, but he says that if Christ didn't raise, our preaching is vain and our faith is vain too. Like he's like, if, if Christ didn't raise, then all that I'm saying to you is pointless. And if he didn't raise, then what you believe is pointless if it didn't actually happen. And so it's really good news that it's pretty facts-based. I mean, there's a couple of examples. The Gospels themselves are historical documents. Like if you, if you look at how historians view like ancient texts and how they figure out, okay, when was it written? Who was it written by? Is it legitimate? Was it, was it a mythology? Was it a real thing? Like the scriptures pass all those tests where just looking at it without even knowing what it says, it's a historical document. People only reject that if they don't want to believe what it's saying. But when you're just using the regular methods of a historian, these are historical documents. We know when they were written. We know who wrote them. Talking about real events that you can see archaeologically and you can look at other documents like Josephus wrote. It's historical stuff that, that happened here. And then you have the situation where there's this empty tomb. And... That's actually a pretty factual thing because there's really no way that that could have been faked. In fact, the Jews didn't even deny it when it happened. In the New Testament, when the tomb was empty, the Jews didn't say, you're lying, it's not empty. They said, you stole it, which is an important point because that means they knew the body was gone. Otherwise, they wouldn't have tried to say, you stole it. But stealing it wasn't really possible because these were Roman soldiers and they had it heavily guarded because he had said, when I die, I'm going to raise in three days. So they all knew he said that. So they had this thing heavily guarded. And if you know about Roman rule and Roman law, if you were a Roman soldier and your prisoner escaped, you got put to death. So there's no way they're going to be asleep on the job of their own free will. There's no way this guy's getting away. So the fact that this tomb is empty, he's gone, a whole, total embarrassment to Rome, like it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened unless it really did happen. You couldn't have faked it. Um, so there's this empty tomb. The other thing that's interesting that I always like to think about as far as this being a facts-based faith, when you think of other religions that are man-made perhaps, like something like Christian science or... Uh, anyway, I'm not going to start naming names, but very often the leaders of these man-made religions gain a whole lot from those beliefs. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of territory involved if they were around during times of battle, they'd be taking over territories, dominating on the world, making all this money. You look at Christ and his main message, like he said, hey, if you're going to follow me, just so you know, it's going to mean persecution and most of you are going to die for me. 
telling us total disciples that this is what your life looks like you're gonna suffer and then you're gonna die for my namesake but don't worry I'll be with you that's what it's gonna look like and then he goes and he dies then he raises and goes to heaven so then all the disciples are there and all of them are, are persecuted and they die John is the longest lasting apostle he was cast off to some island for prisoners where he died an old death on the island of Patmos this wasn't a religion that had anything tangible that they gained. Like, why would they have made that up if they were going to make up a religion? You know, so there's all these, these facts about Christianity that make it really hard to imagine that it could have been made up or that it could have been faked or that this is just a mythological book. There's just all this evidence out there. And so these are the kind of things that Paul would be reasoning about and persuading about in the synagogues. And these disciples would begin to convert and the Jews were like, no, but it's not Judaism. You can't be here. But still, that's why they would come to believe was because it was a reasonable faith. The faith made sense. And so we as Christians, we should be working towards trying to have a faith that makes sense, that we can explain, that, that we believe is true, that we're not just having blind faith. Because we don't need to be afraid of the truth. Because don't you want the truth more than whatever tradition? You know, you want... You want to know you've got the truth, right? And so don't be afraid of that. And it's great because Christianity really is an evidence-based faith. And so that's why Paul could reason. And that's why his method never changed. That's why even today we can preach from this word verse by verse. And I can be confident that just explaining what this says is what God wants us to hear. Because these are his words. I can just continue doing that. I can trust in it because it's a reasonable faith. All right, so there's, there's part of what Paul would do is he would preach and he would be reasonable. And then we come into verse 11 and 12 where it says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, this is kind of amazing. We don't see a lot of that today happening around. You know, we see some guys on TV that say, hey, if you give me your money, I'll pray on this thing and send it to you in the mail. And, you know, we see that happening but we don't see a lot of legitimate miracles happening to this extent through one person as they walk around, everyone's, you know. And there's a reason for that, specifically for the apostles. Um, it wasn't because they were much more holy than you or me or more righteous. In fact, when Peter first healed that lame guy when he was going up to the temple in Acts chapter 3, Peter even says, why are you looking at us like we're like super religious, extra pious people? This has got nothing to do with us. Christ wanted to heal this guy. And then he preaches the gospel and basically says, um, this is who Christ is. So the miracle was there to validate the claim. So you have this new faith. Christ has just been there. The apostles' jobs are to go around sharing this new faith. And there were also a lot of strange heresies happening at that time in Judaism. A lot of false messiahs that would raise up and they would try to go against um, Rome and they'd get defeated and crushed. And so God used miracles as a way to say, this is the real deal. What this man is saying is a real deal and look at the miracles. And so God used that extraordinarily during that initial time too as they were laying the foundation of the early church to really validate and say, this, this is the real deal. This isn't one of those other heresies. This is the real thing. And that's what we have those today. So these miracles were happening, um, and they weren't meant to bring attention to the one doing them. So the person doing the miracle didn't say, oh, this was great, I healed that guy, this is what was going through my mind, and I just started praying, and I was just thinking, and I was just feeling this, and God was saying this to me and that, and all of a sudden, eventually, it's like, it's not about you. And so whenever a miracle would happen through an apostle, they would immediately point to Christ. He's healed, yep, and here's what Christ did. They just did not want the attention on themselves. 
So it was meant to validate the message. But we see that then some people tried to fake it. These, uh, there was apparently this cl- these, a certain class of Jews who practiced exorcisms. They thought people were always um, possessed by demons and they'd go around trying to cast them out and stuff. Um, and they saw that Paul actually could do it for real. They wouldn't use the name of Christ if they were already effective. So you get the you get this sense these guys were going around. This was a profession for them. Um, they, they, they went from place to place. They sojourned around trying to do this thing. But they saw that when Paul did it and using Jesus' name, like this stuff actually is powerful. So they started trying to, to copy that just by using Christ's name. And it didn't work out the way they wanted it to, as we saw already when we read through it. It didn't really work out that way. You know, there are people who don't really know Jesus who try to use his name for their own purposes. Even so-called churches and so-called pastors and so-called Christians, all they'll all say that, oh, God told me this and God told me that, and Jesus, the name of Christ, that, whatever. And that's why you have to really know this Bible. And that's why what we do here is we just go verse by verse just because no matter how long you all are with this fellowship, if you move on to a new place, the best thing I can give you is the ability to know what this says so that you're not going to be tricked by guys that use Christ's name but for their own purposes to abuse people or get money out of people more than necessary and you know cause all sorts of problems but in the name of Christ. So um, these people try to do that and uh, thank God that uh, the demons are the ones who speak up. And this is interesting. When they say, um, yeah, I recognize Jesus and I, I know who Paul is, but, but who are you? Here's something to know about being a Christian. When God knows you, so does the enemy. Do you catch that in verse 15? I recognize Jesus and I know Paul. Why? Why did the demons know Paul? Because he was being effective and the demons don't like that, right? Satan is called the God of the world and so they want to have control over this place. They want to keep things in chaos. They want to destroy God's creation. They don't love God. They hate God and all that God loves they hate. And so whenever they see Jesus or the apostles or any Christian taking over new territory and finding spiritual victories, there are going to be little revolts that happen everywhere because they don't want that. And so as you follow Christ and pursue Jesus and want to know him and start changing your life to follow him, expect hard things to follow because as you gain more spiritual ground in your life, the enemy doesn't like that and you'll have these little revolts that happen. So know that when you're known by God, you're known by the enemy. So Stick close to God because he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. The Bible says that. There's also an interesting um, word connection here. If you notice back in verse 10 when it said that they all heard the word, because of Paul's work in Ephesus, they all began to hear the word. Well, now we saw in verses 11 and 12 that it was accompanied by miracles, and the result of all that. Is it says in verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. So when they saw the real miracles, they saw the fake miracles, that became known to all as well. So you had these, the message of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus was, being heard and known by all. And then you had these miracles being seen and known by all. And I think a neat connection there is that you might know people that know the truth, that have heard the truth, that know the Bible, but it takes a real work of God to actually change a person. Um, God is the one who changes the heart. And that's why we have a reasonable faith. We can defend our faith. We can explain it. 
and you might be talking to somebody and you have all the answers and it sounds like they really get it, but they walk away and they're not changed. And so that's why you got to keep praying because the Bible says in Philippians that he who began a work will complete the work. So he begins the work and he completes the work. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. And so you speak the truth, you defend the truth, and then you pray because a work of God has to happen in you before that, that word. It's basically 18 inches. The truth has to go from your head to your heart. That's, about, that's all it takes. And you might know it up here, and no matter what you do, or you're explaining it to people, and they don't get it, and it's like, just come on, God, just give me 18 inches. It's just got to go from here down to here and start to actually take root in them. And so they had the word, and they had the miracles, and people were knowing it, and great fear came on them, and they were actually getting saved. And so to conclude, what does it look like when you actually hear the truth and you actually start to believe it. What does it look like to not just know it, but have it 18 inches down into your heart where there's a work of God happening in you? What's that start to look like? We see in verse 18 that they, they believed, they kept coming, they kept confessing and disclosing their practices. And if they practiced magic, they brought those books together. They were burning them inside of everybody which you can imagine was a very cheerful thing as they're, they're bringing this stuff in, they're laying these books down, everyone's probably clapping, they're burning like this is a victory for God. They counted up the price of all these and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily. And so this is what it looks like when you hear the truth and when it hits home in your heart, you begin to follow Jesus. You, you start believing, you keep coming back to places where you can learn and you can grow more. You start confessing your sin. You start taking action against that sin. And it's not just a one-time thing. Um, and this is a really important point because there are some people that think if you ever repent of a sin and you ever do that same sin again, then that wasn't really repentance. And if that wasn't really repentance, then you haven't really been forgiven. And so like, if the last thing you do before you die is sin, like you've got a bad thought and then a car accident and you're dead, then that you just didn't, get, you just didn't fully repent, so now you're not saved. Like, there are Christians who teach that. And that's not what the Bible teaches. There's this ongoing part of what it means to be a Christian where life consists of following God, recognizing failures, repenting and asking for forgiveness, and feeling awesome for a second, and then you mess up again. And I'm going to go back to God. I know God is the same sin. I know I did it again. I'm sorry again. I repent again. And then tomorrow's like, yeah, here I am again, God. It was the same sin over it. Like, that's the way it is. And the Bible talks about that. I mean, 1 first, first John 1 verse 9 says that we confess our sins, he's faithful to, convict, to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So as often as we confess, he forgives us. And even Paul, who's, who we're reading about here, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 through 8. It's like an amazing, it's like a short, it's three chapters, but it's basically a book of the Christian life. It's like Romans 6, all right, you got baptized, Christ died, so your old life is dead. Now you're new in Christ, therefore... Try to keep considering yourself dead and keep not sinning. Try. And then verse 7, or chapter 7, he's like, oh man, I can't do this. The things that I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Who can save me? I'm so wretched. That's Paul saying that. And then chapter 8, he's like, thank God there's no one who can separate me from the love of Christ, neither death nor this or that. He's, it's like, that's what the Christian life consists of. Over and over again is this whole like, yes, I'm dying to myself. I'm denying myself. I'm going to try to live for you. I'm going to make mistakes, oh, wretched man that I am, but God forgives me how awesome it is. But there should be that in us if we're really saved. That process should be happening. We shouldn't just be status quo, 
like just going through life, nothing changing. Yeah, I know Jesus is real, but that's just, you know, factual stuff. We should actually be seeing that in our life we have these moments where we recognize, man, I need a Savior today, or man, like I need God to really help me today, and God, I'm, I'm going to repent of this, I'm going to do better, I'm going to confess this to somebody. We should be seeing that happen. It's a sign of what it means when the truth makes that final 18 inches to its destination in our heart and actually takes root in there and starts really changing us from the inside out. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much for Easter. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that it's true and that our whole faith depends on it. Thank you that you really couldn't stay dead. It wouldn't have made sense for a perfect man to stay dead because death is the punishment for sin, which you had none of. You paid for ours. You paid for our sin. You died for us. But you rose again because there's no way death could have held you. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that because that happened, we can believe your promise that we too will be with you forever in eternity, that we will raise, and that we have eternal life in you, that you've forgiven us. We ask that you would just allow that today to sink in, to go from our head to our heart, that it would really just take some root in our heart and begin to, to work in us. We ask for just a fresh work of God in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, oh, my music stand went. Oh, it's over there. Sorry. Okay. We, uh, we sing this thing on the back here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.